Houghton is just this amazing place. It's fascinating. It's yours for the asking. And that is incredible. Plus, it's cool. Welcome to Houghton 75. I'm James Capobianco. And I'm Hannah Farello. Houghton Library opened its doors at Harvard in 1942. Throughout 2017, we're celebrating the library's world-class collections and support of research and teaching over the last 75 years. This podcast is only one of the ways to participate in our year-long program of events that promises a unique glimpse of some of Houghton's most treasured holdings and the way they inspire scholars and students. Visit Houghton75.org for more information. Maps come in all shapes and sizes, but have you ever seen a map that was shaped like a heart? Antarctica spreads up both sides, while the North Pole is pressed down toward the center. It sounds a little bizarre today, but one of the first map projections that displayed the full globe in a single image was shaped just like this. This heart-shaped map projection is referred to as a cordiform map. One of the masters of this form was a French cartographer named Orance Fine. Tom Conley, Abbott Lawrence Lowell Professor of Visual and Environmental Studies and Professor of Romance Languages and Literatures, joined us to discuss Fiend's work and the surprising things we can learn from maps. It turns out that they contain much more than place names and geographic discoveries. This is a remake of a map that Laurence Fine did in 1534, at least published in 1534. The problem of the map was that of the relation of the place names to the curvature of the world, because this is one of the first great maps where you're able to see the entirety of the world in one blink, in one view. In Laurence's first version, he had to put type into the areas where we see the place names. And so there is a slight difference between the curvature that's represented there and then the way that the type is set in squarely. When Cimmerlino redraws this, he was able to put the place names into the work such that they, in effect, married the curvature of the globe. And so you don't have this clunkiness that is due to the relation of the woodcut image to the type that it had to be put in and been absolutely flush. So you have this sense of curvature that's, in fact, enhanced by the new technology. Each new technological advance impacts many aspects of research and production. I hadn't thought about how odd it would look for a map to be covered in text that didn't match the curvature of the projection, but it must have been very jarring to the eye. Professor Conley also explained other advances that led to and eventually replaced the cordiform map. I think that the first cordiform map was done, I think, in the 1520s by Peter Oppian, who was a model and a, a master who was close in time to Orange. 
the longer history of that is that the cordiform map has a very, very short time span. After 1580, gone. No more. It's done in favor of planiform spheres and more scientific representations. It becomes completely obsolete, and then it disappears, and then I find it coming back to life in, I think it was about 1993 or 4, in a 29-cent postage stamp that shows the world as a heart. Uh, (laughs) I bought every stamp I could. I still have some for very motivated letters. I will put on a 29-cent and then add up the rest in order to have that heart shape. I totally remember that stamp. It was marketed as an original design, a special edition. Turns out the design was over 450 years old. But why the heart shape? It seems like an odd shape for a map. Was it just the best method at the time for presenting the full globe? Or did the shape have meaning beyond its practical purpose? He uses the heart form both scientifically and allegorically. Scientifically in that he can just take the pole and then push it down in order to bring the two hemispheres up so they can be seen. That affords him to give this heart shape. But at the same time, the heart shape, when Oons was working in 1530 or so, you had the, uh, the new ideology that was of the Gallican world that was promoted of a kinder, more gentler world whose culture is based on the Pauline letters and on, on Pauline scripture. So, in fact, this is a map that seeks to be generous. And what it's doing at the same time is generating its force. It's almost as if the North Pole becomes the site of a fountain out of which space is emerging. So it has a wonderful mobile effect. What enhances it further is the decoration in the spandrels. You have these uh, two figures that are clearly of uh, Balifontin, of uh, Fontainebleau style, but then these two putti who are blinded by what they see. So when we look at it, it's too much to see. So we have to blind our eyes to this. But at the same time, there's this wonderful relation of their derrieres that are sitting on the plinths of these ruins that, in effect, are miming the shape upside down. <laughs> of the map itself. There's a wonderful sense of humor in the map as well. An interesting thing about historic maps is how they illustrate what was known about the world at a specific point in time. This map is no different and shows several discoveries and hypotheses about the globe. Some of those details that we now consider inaccurate have their roots in trade and other sailing ventures. It's an early map, the first maps that disengages Greenland as an island. And then it's one of the first maps that gives us the earliest naming of Canada, which is Bacalear, which is codfish. And that's because ever since the 15th century, that French fishermen really went off to the Great Bank in the 15th century, before the Colombian discoveries. And they, uh, they caught lots of fish, and then they brought them back. And they knew the Canada was there, They were interested in fish, not land. And so, yeah, it was there, but they didn't care about it. And so the presence of of the history of the French fishing trade is given by the way that Canada, Bacalayar, just pushes very, very close to France. It's just a skip and a jump to go from Brittany or, uh, or Normandy over to the Great Bank. 
accuracy of Africa that's given clearly from information culled from all the Portuguese mariners and a pretty good sense of the eastern coastline of South America. Then the presence here with Terra Florida, that's clearly from Verrazano's travels because he was hired by Francis I to explore the New World. So all that information is there. You know, it's just filled with everything that's known about the world up to this date. But maps not only reveal what has been discovered, they also show what is yet to be explored. It isn't only what is on the map that's important. You can also learn a great deal from what's missing. Here you also see this wonderful uneven development of place names. Europe is just blackened mm -hmm. with place names. And then the New World is terra incognita. It shows that the unknown is part of the mystery mm -hmm. of the world. And I'm not buying into the fact that the unknown has to be conquered there. But I think the unknown, in the way that this map has its allegorical and almost spiritual sense of the unknown is its metaphysics or it's almost its theology. It puts its faith in the unknown, not the unknown of which it's afraid, of which it has to conquer, but in effect it's just given in the design itself. Oh. It can be a psychoanalyst and then invoke what's so-called the relation of the unknown, which is in effect the basis of well, human life is we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's what makes us go. And I think it's, uh, it's given here just marvelously. Part of teaching is working with students' desire to discover what they don't yet know. But venturing into the unknown can be slow, difficult progress. Professor Conley attempts to ease his students' passage through the use of maps and other visual tools. He claims literature and maps are related spatial devices, and the study of one will support the study of the other. Yeah, I'm in literature and in visual studies, and in teaching Renaissance French literature, it almost goes without saying that the language is really difficult. It's slow going, and you have to get some Latin, and then the French is very Latinate, and it tends to be copious. More is more, it's not less, is more. More is more, and you have to work through this material. And so I have found that maps became aids for the comprehension of this work, but then as I went along, discovered that both the literature and the cartographic matter are almost of the same piece because they are works that produce space. They are spatial inventions. So the creation of a sense of local and world and cosmic space comes from the relation that these works have with one another. And so that language, in effect, is a spatial phenomenon we see it distributed all over the map. And then the same happens in poetry or in texts where, in effect, the cardinal positioning of words is crucial to the force of their form. So you have poems that, in fact, have vanishing points in them. Or you have poems that work on the cardinal edges. So then these works become maps unto themselves because they are charted and plotted. So more and more I'm starting to see the one as a function of the other, and I do this now more and more in my teaching and in my research. Our thanks go to Professor Tom Conley for joining us and sharing his passion for this unique map. The music today, though you may not have been able to tell just from listening, 
was all heart-related to go along with the cordiform map. The song was Belle Bonne Sage by Baud de Cordier. The 15th century music was actually written in a heart shape by the composer. The performance of that piece was by Blue Heron, who can be found at blueheron.org. Thanks so much to them. The instrumental music, also from the 15th century, can be found in a heart-shaped manuscript in the Bibliothèque Nationale in France. Thanks to La Chapelle des Ducs de Savoie for their performance of these wonderful pieces. If you are in the Boston area, be sure to come by Harvard Yard and visit us here at Houghton Library, where you can see Orange Fiennes' cordiform map, as well as many other fascinating selections in our current exhibition, Hist 75H, a masterclass on Houghton Library, open and freely available to the public until April 22nd. It's also available on the web at houghton75.org. Just click on the Exhibitions tab. Transcripts and detailed musical notes can also be found on our website at houghton75.org podcast. Until next time, thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Houghton 75.